Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 244 of Forgotten Classics, part two of Warrior Queen of Mars. But first, I have a podcast highlight, and it's brand spanking new off the press, or off the recorder, or wherever it's off of. Anyway, this podcast is called Reading Envy. It is named after the blog that Jenny Colvin has, which of course is what it sounds like. It's a reading blog. Now I first, well, I was going to say met Jenny, but I've never met Jenny. I have spoken with her over Skype and on SFF Audio's podcast We'll say that's where I virtually met her, (laughs) because I feel like we're pals. I follow her on Goodreads, because I enjoy seeing her comments there. I, of course, read her reviews on SFF Audio's blog. I look at her Reading Envy blog, because she does a lot of stuff that I would never do, and I'm kind of in awe of her. She will read things predicated on lists. And here I'm talking about things like the Booker Prize. That list of nominees will come out. She will start reading all those books. So she knows what she thinks when the prize comes out. Now, this is akin to somebody, for me, who says, Oh, the Oscars are out. I'll watch every single one. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm never going to do that. Even though I love lists. I love making them and I love reading them. And Jenny will do this for all kind of lists, you know, because there are all kind of prestigious prizes that come out and she'll just read all those books. She also does these book challenges where she'll say, I want to read a book from or about every country in the world. I think she's on year three of that challenge. But, you know, she's doing it. She's reading books that I would take one look at and go, I don't care if it's about Micronesia or not never happening. Not going to read it. Now, what does her blog have to do with her podcast? Well, she and Scott Danielson, who you've heard me mention many a time because he and I do a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. He was one of the original two from SFF Audio's blog and podcast. You know, you just meet the best people at SFF Audio. I'm going to say it. I love those people, all of them. Anyway, he and Jenny decided that they wanted to do something where they just talked about what they were reading. Didn't pick one book and go into it in depth, but just kind of went back and forth about, oh, here's what I'm reading and here's what I like and don't like. So it's as if they're sitting down at the pub once a month and having a chat about their books. The first episode has just been published and it was really fun to listen to them talking about it, especially once they kind of warmed up partway into it and were asking each other questions or commenting about genres or authors or how they read. It was really good. I really liked it. I'm looking forward to the next one. So of course, I wanted to let you know about it. I will put a link on the blog because as of my recording, It's new enough that iTunes hasn't worked it into their system yet. But you can, of course, download this or listen to it at Reading Envy. And in a week or two, which is about iTunes speed, it'll be there. So you can look for it there, too. Now let's get back to Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade. Except I actually got some new information. 
Catfish commented and said that the actual author of this is Roger Phillips Graham. Apparently, Alexander Blade was a pseudonym and used by many, many, many authors, which I had no idea of, and I'm going to continue saying Alexander Blade because I just won't remember it. But Roger Phillips Graham, we thank you also, despite the pseudonym. And thank you, Catfish, for pointing that out. Now, just to catch us up so we remember where we are, because this thing has everything in it. It's got an almost perfectly naked, but can live at a degree below freezing, six foot four, perfectly formed woman. It's got the doctor who is a genius, really old, looks like he's 25, and can do everything, evidently. It's got a mysterious can. When it's sprayed in people's faces, they completely blank out, although they do not collapse. What the what, right? It has, oh, right, evil Russians. How can we ask for anything more? Well, the doctor is hot on the trail. If you're at part two, we know you already listened to part one. Those are just to jog your memory. But suffice it to say, the maiden has disappeared. There was an attack. The doctor, hot on the trail, trying to figure out what was going on. Let's join him. Dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade Part 2 I tell you we've got to hurry, Tom said irritably. What's the hurry? The gray-haired police chief said unperturbed. They can't get away. That's what you think. Tom said. There's a ship somewhere out there that's quite capable of leaving the Earth. A spaceship, the chief said skeptically. Did you see it? No, Tom confessed, but I'm sure it's there. Our men are pursuing those two who shot at you, the chief said. If they lose them, all we have to do is telegraph the other towns to be on the watch. We've notified the Russian government that their man is here in Iceland and invited them to send planes and men to search for him. Frankly, I don't have the budget to place more men on this. I'll foot the bill, Tom groaned. When the chief shook his head, he went on, Then is there anything against my chartering a plane and going after them myself? You can do that, of course, the chief said, but we can't be responsible for your safety. To hell with that, Tom said, rising. He paused at the door. You could at least give me the protection of a police car to the airport and make sure I can get a plane. Sighing, the chief rose from his desk and followed Tom into the front of the police station where he ordered two men to take Tom to the airport. At the airport, as he was hurrying across the waiting room to the air traffic office, he saw the pilot who had brought him to Reykjavik from the Newark field. Hello, Tom said, frantically searching his mind for a memory of the pilot's name. I thought you would be returning to Newark by now. I thought I'd stick around a day or two, the pilot said, grinning broadly. I know you said you'd be catching a scheduled flight plane back, but... He shrugged his shoulders to indicate it didn't make much difference to him. Maybe I can use you, Tom said. I've got to fly north of Reykjavik, but you'd have to get a plane equipped with runners for landing on ice. 
It's already done, Mr. Bond, the pilot said. And my plane is refueled and the motor's checked. I can be ready to take off in half an hour. You've got yourself a job, Tom grinned. Get going. I'm going to be on the phone while the plane's warming up. When you're ready to go, come over to number three hangar. That's where the plane is. If you don't see me around, just ask for me. Ken Davis. Okay, Ken, Tom said. He watched the trim back of the young pilot as he hurried away, then continued on to the offices. In five minutes, he was on the radio telephone in contact with the New York Exchange. He gave the number of a large electrical corporation that he owned a block of shares in. He asked for Dave Gunnerson, president of the corporation. It took several minutes of hasty phoning at the other end to locate the man. Finally, he was on the phone. Listen, Dave, Tom said. You recognize my voice? Don't name any names, but do you? Of course, Dave Gunnerson answered. The operator said you're calling from Iceland. What are you doing up there? No time now to go into that, Tom said. Do you have a stenographer handy? No, Dave said, but I can hook in the tape recorder. Do that, Tom said. I want something built. He waited until he heard the soft note that signaled every ten seconds that the conversation was being recorded. I want a frequency selector bank that will throw small relays for specific frequencies, the full 88 notes of the piano keyboard. The leads from the relays are to go to a sliding contact bar made as small as possible so that each relay can be connected to one key of an electrical typewriter. Incorporated into this setup must be an electric organ setup as small as feasible so that the frequency that contacts any letter of the typewriter can also make that same frequency sound in a loudspeaker if a switch for that operation is in. Let me get this straight, Dave Gunnerson said. You want something that will type the letter A, say, when the note A is sounded by some outside source and will in turn sound the same note over a loudspeaker when the key A is pressed manually. Right, Tom said, and I want it as soon as possible. I want it completed and rushed up here by plane, and if it gets here tomorrow, that won't be too soon. Hold on a minute, Dave said. There was a delay of three or four minutes. Then he was back. It won't take as long as I thought, he said. I just talked to Croft. He says it can take stock parts throughout and be divided into half a dozen simultaneous jobs. The men will work until it's finished. Croft says it can be done and tested by midnight. He's starting on it now. What the devil is it all about? I haven't the time right now to go into that, Dave, Tom said. Send it prepaid to the Reykjavik airport to Frank Bond. If necessary, charter a plane to send it in. Okay, ta- uh, Frank. Dave said. Ken Davis and his plane were in front of the huge hangar. The motors were running smoothly. He grinned at the young pilot. The plane cabin was comfortably warm. He settled down in the co-pilot seat, noting the basket of food and the two huge thermos bottles of coffee. Ken closed the door in the shell and contacted the tower for clearance. After a brief wait, the tower clearance came. Tom studied the pilot quietly as he maneuvered the plane and took off. Ken Davis lifted the plane in a steep climb until Reykjavik was far below. "'Where to?' he asked. "'Straight north about twenty miles,' Tom said. 
and as Ken turned the plane's nose northward. Been flying long? Three years, Ken replied. I started out to be an airline pilot, but an aunt died and left me $30,000. I bought this plane and went into business for myself. Most of my trips are charter flights to Florida. Ten people can charter my plane and land at any field in Florida actually cheaper than they can fly down in commercial airliners. I have a deal with three resorts down there, so they steer vacationers from New York to me. You know, several people make reservations for a certain date at a resort. The resort telegraphs me, and I contact the people and offer them club rates. If four go down, I break even. All over that, up to the ten, I carry or clear profit. Nice racket, Tom agreed. But what made you stick around up here? You're losing money. He looked down. Charlie's hoden was in sight now, a small dot at the base of the mountain. Well, frankly, Ken Davis said, I smelled some excitement, and I've always had a yen to get some. I thought I'd stick around and see what happened. Glad I did. For one thing, I get to see something of Iceland I wouldn't buy myself. My insurance doesn't cover solo, only hired flights. Without warning, the plane gave a violent lurch. When Tom and Ken recovered sufficiently to see what had happened, the tail of the plane was gone completely. Quick, Ken said. Parachute's in the locker. He deserted the controls and opened the locker door. Tom shoved Ken away when he tried to help him put on a chute. Put one on yourself, he said. I know what to do. Less than a minute later, both men were in the air, dropping toward the white earth below, the plane struck half a mile to the north seconds later. Tom searched the ground for signs of moving objects. To the north he saw a solitary moving dot. It would be out of sight when they reached the ground. He memorized the northern skyline so that he would know which way to head. They landed within fifty feet of each other. What the devil could have caused that explosion? Ken asked. It was from outside the plane or we would have been killed by the blast. It must have been a small bomb tied to the tail, Tom said. Did you see anyone hanging around your plane before I came out? No, Ken said. His forehead creased into a scowl. There were people, all right, but... He turned grave eyes on Tom. This may sound screwy, he said seriously, but everything seemed to be funny. The motor started up cold and coughing, then the next second it was running smoothly, the motor blocks throwing off heat like they'd been going twenty minutes. It was almost like I'd blacked out, but I couldn't have because I'd have keeled over and known about it when I came to. Like this? Tom said. He took the paper-wrapped can from his pocket and sprayed a whiff at Ken, then walked away about fifteen feet and waited. Ken remained standing where he was, a placid expression on his face, for five minutes. Then his face came to life. He uttered a startled exclamation. How the devil you get away over there? He asked. Are you a magician? It seemed to you like I suddenly vanished and appeared over here at the next instant? Tom asked. At Ken's vigorous nod. It was that stuff I sprayed at you. You blanked out and I walked over here. Ken nodded understandingly. That's what happened to me at the hangar, he said. And now I can remember there was a guy walking past me. At least, I thought there was, but he seemed to vanish in front of my eyes. Funny I forgot about him.
accidents are funny, Ken said, picking the two unbroken thermos bottles of coffee out of the wreckage of the plane. He handed them to Tom, standing outside. Tom set them down on the snow and looked back through the jagged hole in the fuselage in time to see Ken take two forty-five automatics out of a small cubbyhole compartment by the pilot seat. Maybe these'll come in handy, Ken smiled grimly. He looked at the pile of things that had been salvaged from the plane. Lucky there was no fire, he said thankfully. Tom was already pouring two steaming cups of coffee. He handed one to Ken. I wish we had a radio, he said. The guns don't make us equal to those ten Russians. We need reinforcements. Let's drink our coffee quick and see what that solitary moving dot was on the other side of the rise. We may as well leave most of the stuff right where it is, Ken said. An hour later they topped the rise, and ahead to the north the snow-covered plain stretched in utterly bleak barrenness for at least five miles. A brisk wind was rising from the northwest. Clouds of fine dry snow were picked up and carried along by it, obscuring the view. And nowhere in that desolate scene was there a moving thing. Tom turned and looked to the south. The bloated yellow sun was half hidden under the horizon. Before long it would be gone. There would be at least fourteen hours of darkness. Looks like we're in for it. Ken said uneasily. That's a storm blowing up. He looked at Tom closely. You're pretty worried about that girl, aren't you? He saw his answer in Tom's expression. He started walking, but drew up short. What's that ahead? He asked. Tom looked where he pointed. In the tricky light... There seemed to be a solid mass of swirling snow with strangely black curved lines, two of them hovering outside it. Even when for a brief moment the swirling snow cleared and it appeared in sharp outline, it was almost impossible for the mind to accept the evidence of the eyes. It was at least a mile away, and even at that distance it was huge. It was covered with thick white fur. A mastodon, Ken breathed. The two men stood speechless as the huge creature came toward them. Now and then it disappeared behind a wall of snow or was obscured by a cloud of wind-blown snow. Then suddenly it was only yards away. The deceptive distances had made it seem far away until the last moment. It was running in a lazy lope, its thick fur-covered ears flapping at each step. Its eyes were a bright yellow, its long, curving tusks jet-black tipped with yellow metal that seemed to end in sharp points. But so gracefully did it carry itself that its size seemed a distortion. It was coming directly at them, head low, in a rapid charge. God, Ken muttered, it sees us. Run! A blast trumpeted from the raised trunk of the furry mammoth, Ken and Tom turned and ran. As Tom ran, something heavy in his pocket bounced against him. He remembered it was the can of the mysterious spray chemical. The ground was quivering under his feet from the nearness of the charging beast as he pulled off his gloves and let them drop to the snow. The can stuck in his pocket. 
He pulled at it, looking over his shoulder and seeing the white-furred mammoth almost over him, its trunk stretched toward him, steam blowing from it in puffs. Then the can came free. He held it over his shoulder and pressed on the valve. The hollow, roaring breath of the mammoth stopped. The ground, suddenly, was no longer quaking under his feet. Still running, Tom took his finger off the valve and looked back. The mammoth had stopped and was standing still, waving its trunk in a leisurely manner, almost as though it were at a zoo behind bars. Tom stopped running. He sank to the snow and lay there panting, the cold air torturing his nostrils and throat as his lungs bellowed in and out, searching for oxygen for starved tissue. Finally, he raised his head and looked around, searching for Ken. Ken was coming toward him, a concerned expression on his face, his eyes studying the mammoth warily. Tom silently thanked God the beast had chosen to charge him instead of Ken. "'What happened to the brute?' Ken asked as he came up and sat down near Tom. "'I used that spray on him,' Tom said. He struggled to his feet. "'I'd better give him a good shot of it or he might wake up any minute.' "'I'll do it,' Ken said. "'No,' Tom said. "'I'm all right now. I've caught my breath.' Ken walked beside him as they approached the mammoth. Tom put the can near the swaying trunk and pressed on the valve, holding his face away. He blinked his eyes, and the mammoth was twenty feet away, and he was lying on his back in the snow. "'Damn,' he said in amazement. He knew what had happened. In spite of his precautions, he'd gotten a whiff of the spray.' Ken had brought him over where he was and made him lie down. Ken was standing in front of the mammoth, his face raised curiously, studying the giant furred brute. Tom got to his feet and joined him. Ken sensed his approach and turned smiling at him and handed him the spray can. Thanks, Tom said. That stuff acts without any warning at all. It's magic. So's this mammoth, Ken said. I've been examining it. Watch. He slapped its trunk sharply halfway up. The trunk curved to form a seat. Ken sat in it, and promptly the creature lifted him and sat him expertly on its head. The trunk dropped away and started swinging slowly again. Also, the mammoth's body started swaying in gentle rhythm, elephant-like. Ken slid off, landing on his feet. Look at those metal ends on its tusks, he said. They aren't gold. At least they seem too hard to be gold. And examine the brute's fur. It's plenty thick and pure white like it's been washed. But more important, it's been clipped so it's a uniform three inches in length. The hairs are thick enough so you can see some of them are cut straight across, and some at an angle. Tom nodded his head in agreement as he took a look. It's domestic, he said. Imagine it. Extinct mammoths here in Iceland, domesticated, and never a hint of it before this. It would seem that someone would have seen them. Planes fly over this country often enough so that such a thing wouldn't have escaped detection. Unless they just came recently, Ken said. They might be off that spaceship, too. That's possible, Tom said. He looked speculatively at the mammoth. I wonder if he would be any good to carry us. If he got rambunctious, we could give him another whiff. Ken grinned into the creature's yellow eyes. 
The wind increased gradually to blizzard proportions, sharp biting snow borne on its frigid breath, snow that came from the glacier ice terrain and perhaps from clouds. Tom and Ken clung to the back of the white-furred mammoth, gripping hands full of the bristle-like hair to keep from being blown off rather than dislodged by the animal's motion. They kept their faces buried in the white mat of fur which served the double purpose of providing warmth against the sub-zero wind and of filtering the sand-like snow from the air they breathed. They made no attempt to steer the mammoth. They had long ago lost all sense of direction. Hours ago they had ceased talking. The wind plucked the words from their mouths, hurled them away, and flung sharp crystals of snow into their eyes and against their skin. And to each of them came an occasional fear that the mammoth would awaken from its somnambulic anesthesia to rear up and dislodge them and trample them underfoot in rage. This fear was tempered by the almost certainty that if it were to awaken, it wouldn't even realize they were on its back. As the hours stretched on interminably, staying awake became a nightmare of torture. Each man would cling, then awake to find he had dozed for a fraction of a second and relaxed his grip with the realization that to fall meant certain death in the blizzard. And as he huddled on the swaying flat back in the carpet of long fur, Tom Farmer puzzled over the mystery of the mammoth. Was it a creature of Mars or of some other planet? native to the world the girl had come from? Its metabolism was not an alcohol one. Its body gave off too much warmth. The girl had to be from some other world. Never in the history of the earth had any race of man used pure tonal notes for speech. Even if she were an immortal, born in some forgotten period of man's history, if there had existed any race using music for speech, it, or at least some legend of it, would have been handed down to the period of recorded history and legend. Her being in Iceland would be a natural thing. Her body temperature was normally one degree below freezing. She and any others like her that had arrived in a spaceship would have chosen a climate and temperature as suited to their comfort as possible. More temperate parts of the earth would have seemed insufferably hot to them. Where did the Russians come in? Had they escaped to Iceland to hide in its frozen stretches of uninhabited wasteland and then stumbled onto the ship and its inhabitants? And killed off all except the one whom Dr. Foster had found unconscious beside the trail over which he had been driving his motor sled? Who was the man who had used his spray to go from Reykjavik to New York? A Russian from the same gang? It seemed likely he would avoid having to present identifications and a passport and giving away his identity. Those three men who had called at his house and asked for him hadn't been foreigners but native New Yorkers. That indicated nothing in any direction. There were still sympathizers with the old Russian dictatorship that would work with and hide members of this gang hiding here in the heart of Iceland. Or the little man who wasn't there, as the papers had dubbed him, could be one of those Native American sympathizers who was keeping his visit to Iceland secret because he was a known sympathizer, and it would be suspected that surviving members of the dictatorship were hiding in Iceland if it were known he had come. Suppose those escaped Russians had possession of the spaceship and weapons unknown to modern Earth science. 
They might be able to make a successful comeback and destroy millions of people in regaining their hold on half the world. That must be it. To such men, the destroying of a plane with 75 people on it just to kill one man would be justified for their irrational cause. They would think nothing of it. To them, it would be just another phase of the war. Suddenly, Tom jerked his head up. He had been asleep. He had been sleeping because the mammoth's back was no longer swaying and the blizzard had died down to almost nothing. It was snowing, and snow fell off the back of his head as he jerked upright. He blinked his eyes and looked around. Rising a few feet away was a snow-covered structure which, from its outlines under its snow blanket, was man-made. Ever so slowly, he turned and reached back to Ken, shaking his shoulder gently. Ken mumbled, lifting his head sleepily. Shh, Tom hissed. We're here. He watched Ken look around questioningly, slowly waking to the meanings of what he saw. That big door, Ken whispered, pointing. Tom looked. He had missed that. It was a huge door like the sliding panel of a barn. This mammoth is liable to be noticed any moment, he said softly to Ken. We'd better slide down and hide somewhere. He suited his actions to his words, landing with a muffled thud in the fresh snow. While he was still falling, a loud snorting blast trumpeted. He looked up to see the beast rising above him, enormous, with yellow fire in its eyes, its thick black tusks poised to fall on him. To one side was Ken, tossed by the rearing creature. But Tom barely noticed this. His eyes were fixed on the poised ebony tusks with their gold caps sharply pointed. The giant monster seemed to prolong his upright pose in order to gloat at him. His trunk was lifted delicately out of the way. His eyes glittered in their wall of white fur. Then, on the air, sounded a rapid series of quick, peremptory notes. The light in the mammoth's eyes changed. He flapped his furry ears protestingly, then half-pivoted and sank to all fours. The series of notes sounded again. They came from some distance away. The mammoth lifted his trunk and uttered a soft blast. Uttering a succession of muffled snorts, he moved off in the direction of the sound, apparently forgetting about his prey. Out away from the building, Ken, Tom ordered quickly. Cover yourself with snow so you can't be seen so easily. They found a drift less than a hundred yards away and burrowed into the soft snow, turning to watch in the direction from which the singing voice had come. A moment later, an amazing sight emerged through the gloom. The mammoth was returning. It was dancing and cavorting about a girl who was walking with indescribable grace in every step. From her lips came a series of clear notes that skipped around in three octaves, each note barely uttered, and is quickly succeeded by another, in a manner that not even an operatic soprano could approach in skill and firmness. The mammoth would half bow, the curve of his tusks in the snow, then gamble off in a great circle to return and repeat his playful maneuvers like a puppy grown unbelievably large. Speechless with amazement, Tom and Ken watched as the pair approached the door of the snow-plastered building. The girl was wearing black fur in a costume something like a two-piece swimsuit. 
Her hair was encased in a large black fur turban-shaped hat with a trim of soft red like a skullcap. At her ears and part of the headdress were large gleaming stones that reflected golden fire. She went up to the door and pulled out a pin. She uttered more notes. The mammoth inserted the metal tips of his tusks in indentations in the door and slid it sideways. Light flooded out, and with it, sound. Tom and Ken gasped. Revealed through the opened door were other mammoths, all of them the same pure white of the one that had carried them here. They were turning their heads in the direction of the door, trumpeting softly. With a loud snort of joy, the mammoth lumbered through the doorway. The girl sounded several quick, commanding notes. He frisked his tail and turned back, snorting impudently. His head went behind the door. It swung closed. The girl dropped the pin back in place, then started away in the direction she had come. Maybe we should let her know we're here, Ken whispered. No, Tom whispered back. She isn't the one I met at Charlie's. We've got to wait and explore first. They may be in with the Russians, and if they are, we'd just be committing suicide by letting her know we're here. Silent, they watched as the night swallowed her up. They left the concealment of the snowdrift and followed the tracks of the girl in the snow. "'Wonder where they get all the hay it takes to feed that barn full of mammoths?' Ken asked after a few minutes. "'That is a thought,' Tom said. "'There were at least twenty of them. It would almost take an airlift to keep them fed. You know, this is getting more and more mysterious as we go along. Creatures that are supposed to have become extinct hundreds of thousands of years ago.' Girls over six feet tall that use singing in place of words for speech and have a normal body temperature of one degree below freezing, and still manage to raise mine a couple of degrees when I look at them, Ken said. Tom smiled. That's against the laws of thermodynamics, he said. And there's the Russians who escaped when the dictatorship went down. How do they fit in? You said the girl you met at Charlie's Hodan ran from them, Ken said. That would mean they weren't friendly. Maybe she was out for a ride when she got conked and Dr. Foster found... Shh! Tom silenced him. We're coming to something. Emerging out of the eye-lulling gloom was another regular shape covered with snow. Its wall rose to a height of ten or twelve feet, and above that rose another few feet of snow. The two crept up to it warily. Tom scraped some snow off, revealing a surface of concrete. A pillbox, Ken exclaimed. Not so loud, Tom warned. It's a concrete pillbox, all right. I'm beginning to see a little daylight. This is man-made and Russian. I've seen too many of theirs. That means this is one of the secret advance posts they built up, Ken said. It also explains the presence of those outlaws. Tom whispered. This fortress was never discovered by the Allies in the last war, and with the collapse of the dictatorship, the personnel garrisoned here just remained. There must be a ring of these pillboxes. Wonder what they guard, an airstrip or a mine? I just had a weird thought on that, Ken said. They were built to ring the spaceship those girls came in with their mammoths. That's not so weird, Tom replied. It's probably true. We'd better be quiet. There may be men inside this thing who can hear us. 
What about the girls' footprints in the snow? Ken asked. Let's go back to them and see where they go. They followed their own tracks until they returned to her trail. It led past the pillbox and on into the darkness. They went slowly, trying to pierce the darkness in order to see what was coming in time to avoid being seen themselves. Another concrete pillbox appeared. Tom and Ken followed the trail past it, then paused. They had heard the sound of voices from the pillbox. Normal human voices. They followed the sound. It was coming from a narrow slit high up in the concrete wall. The words were distinguishable now, but they were in Russian. Neither of them could understand it. They returned to the tracks of the girl. Other pillboxes appeared. It was growing lighter. To the east, the sky was a deep red. Shortly, the sun would come up. We're right in the thick of it, Ken murmured worriedly. We'll have to risk it, Tom said. We have to find out all we can. If we leave now, they'll find our tracks and follow us anyway. The next structure was a wooden shed. The girls' tracks led past it and onward in a straight line. Let's see what's in that shed, Tom whispered. They went up to the door. It was fastened on the outside with a hasp and a bent piece of iron wire. Tom lifted out the wire and he pushed the door open swiftly to keep it from squeaking. Inside, stacked against the walls, were skis. In racks built for them were the motor-driven propellers Tom had seen on the backs of the men at Charlie's Hoden. This must be where they keep their travel outfits, he said. Let's take a couple of them and get out of here, Ken said earnestly. I have a hunch if we're caught we won't live ten seconds. I thought you said you wanted excitement, Tom said. I did, Ken said. But this is too big. For one thing, the world should know what's going on here. That's true, Tom said with a worried frown. Suppose you take one of these outfits and go back to Reykjavik and get help while I stay and see what it's all about. I'm not going to run out on you, Ken said emphatically. If you stay, I stay. I'm serious, Tom said. In another half hour, it will be daylight. Take an extra pair of skis and an extra power unit with you and head about ten degrees to the right of where the sunlight on the horizon is strongest. And when you've gone a mile or two, bury them in the snow. If I have to run for it and can find it, I'll have a better chance of getting away. How about you going and me staying? Ken asked. Tom shook his head. It's a dangerous trip and I'm an old man, he grinned. I'll wait till you bring a plane to take me out. You just hate hard work, Ken said. All right, I'll go. There should be a large package for me at the airport, Tom said. It'll contain a machine which will make it possible to talk with these girls. But the first thing you must do when you get to Reykjavik is call this number in Washington, and whoever answers, just say AB63 and keep repeating that to each person until you get someone who says he ain't here. Then you say... Oh, dear, and I so wanted to have lunch with him. Can you remember that? Ken repeated it slowly. You'll be connected to a person who can handle this in a hurry, Tom said. Tell him only about the Russians and the pillboxes. That's enough. Don't tell him who you are. He won't ask. The fact that you got to him will be enough. Tom watched Ken from the darkness of the doorway until he was lost to sight in the gloom. Even then he waited. 
listening for some cry or noise that would indicate discovery of Ken's flight. Finally, sure that he had gotten away undetected, he let a long breath of relief escape. Then he left the wooden shack and followed the tracks the girl had left in the snow, going at a slow trot. The gloom of night was softening. It was possible to see much farther now. In every direction were the pillboxes. If there were any sentries, it would be impossible to escape detection. But there was little likelihood of it. The Russians would never think of anyone being here. The tracks curved now, going in closer to one of the concrete pillboxes and hugging it as they went around out of sight. Tom slowed to a walk, stealing forward cautiously. He came to a steel door in the concrete wall. The tracks ended here. She had gone inside. He listened against the door. No sound came from within. Cautiously, he tried it. It opened under his touch. He pushed it open farther, ready to spring back. Inside, a single small light globe was casting a feeble glow, revealing the place to be empty. He stepped in and closed the steel door behind him. Okay, now, I just want to say, I realize I can't hold this story to close scrutiny. (laughs) It is Pulp Fiction. It was in Fantastic Adventures magazine. But really, people have been spraying this stuff at people's faces. Planes have been going down over the ocean. 75 people died or whatever. And you don't think to mention to the pilot, hey, hey, keep your eyes open because there could be a problem. I'm beginning to wonder if that doctor is really as smart as they're telling us. (laughs) I was listening going, whoa, what do you think? A bomb on the plane? Oh, man. I was intrigued by the whole Mastodon situation. I like that the Mastodon, its hair is being trimmed so you can see the angles. So somebody's carefully combing and trimming the hair on a Mastodon. This is high-level grooming, okay? And then when I heard that there were about 20 more of them, I thought, these young ladies, no wonder they're not wearing much. They must be worn out and dripping sweat from constantly grooming mastodons all the time. Anyway, I don't know about you, but I'm really having a lot of fun with this story. And we will have one more part of it, obviously. It will be probably about half an hour long, like this one was. And, of course, full of pulp adventure goodness. More evil Russians, more warrior queens, or at least one we know of. So, we'll finish that up next time. Now, I do have several bits of podcast news. Not from me, you know, I just keep going along. But I was surprised to see there are several things that I'm pretty excited about, so I thought I'd share them with you. One is Uvula Audio finished, well, they finished The Lone Ranger a while back, but they've been doing a children's book. Now, though, they're done with that, and they've got a classic science fiction story going on, Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith. Cordwainer Smith is one of those names that you see if you read much old science fiction, which obviously I do, but you know, I've never read anything by him that I can think of. So I'm really excited about this. 
also Astronomy Cast, which I just go by every so often to see what's going on over there. They have just begun a two-part series about Arthur C. Clarke. And the first part, which I've listened to, talks about his life and career some, his writing. But the next one should be very interesting because they're going to look at, from a scientific point of view and cultural point of view, what of his predictions actually have come to pass. So that should be very interesting. Craftlet is done with whatever that Edith Wharton book was that I didn't care about. But now they're going to start North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Well, I think that's coming up in maybe a couple of weeks. Just letting you know so you can get your listening ready. Get everything else cleared away. Because this has been the subject of a BBC miniseries. In fact, I saw somebody recently talking about how much they liked it. Rose saw the miniseries that made her read the book, which she also enjoyed very much. And I have always meant to read an Elizabeth Gaskell book because she's just one of those people that you hear about a lot, especially if you enjoy, you know, Jane Eyre, those sorts of books. So anyway, this is going to happen. And I think there's an actress who either Heather or LibriVox got to read the book for them, so it should be really a wonderful listening experience. Last, maybe least, but probably not least, depends on where your interests lie. Protecting Project Pulp, which is the pulp fiction story arm of the Starship Sofa Empire, has a story in Destiny's Clutch by Raphael Sabatini. Now, I love Raphael Sabatini's stories. He could write the best adventure stories ever, but everybody always seems to just choose one or two of his books and nothing else. So I haven't even heard of this one. So when I see one like that, I get very interested. And also, if you haven't swung by Protecting Project Pulp lately, they've always got some good stuff going on. So when this is done, if you're missing the green girl, that's a good place to start. Okay, that's lots and lots of podcasting good news for you. Let's see. I don't know if I have anything else. Ken from Hawaii, who wanted the story read, had asked what was going on with my family. And I have to say, I haven't talked about it much because no news is good news, really. Nothing much is going on. Hannah's doing great on her job. Rose is doing great on her job. Tom and I are doing well, both at work and at home. And, you know, you don't get many periods in your life like this. Isn't that right? Where everything's just swimming along. You have to really appreciate them while they're happening. I guess the only thing that's been going on is Tom and I have really been watching the football playoffs, mostly because we enjoy watching something where we don't care as much about the team. After having our hearts broken by the Dallas Cowboys all season, yes, all season, Jerry Jones, all season, it's kind of nice to watch and say, wow, I really wish Peyton Manning would get a chance to go in with a different team to the Super Bowl, maybe win. Oh, it happened. Good. But if the other team won, well, Tom Brady deserves another chance, maybe. That kind of thing. The only thing I can tell you I really don't like the Seattle Seahawks. They are thugs. Thugs, I'm saying it. They really made me think of the old Oakland Raiders. 
from when I was a kid, maybe in the 70s. Wow, you always knew that they were going to be brutal. Well, there you go. That's the Seahawks. So I'm pretty sure that everybody, sorry, can't ask what's going on because they don't want to hear about football anymore. (laughs) I'm just going to say go Broncos, boo Seahawks, and we'll see how it goes. It will give a certain peak to watching the Super Bowl in a couple weeks, and that will be fun. Plus, there's going to be all those great commercials, which is what, even when we didn't watch much football, we always watched for the commercials since we're in advertising. And I actually ran into a friend last week who was saying the same thing. She said, I don't really care about the teams, but I love the commercials. So that's almost an art form in the years when it goes well. So we'll see how all that goes. So yeah, nothing much is going on when all I can do is talk about football, right? So if you're asleep, wake up, wake up. Otherwise, you're nodding or disagreeing with me. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention is that by the time you get this, probably, there will be a new A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast where Scott and I talk about the TV show Community. So there's also that. And I guess everything else is just down to me being glad that you're coming by to listen, to correct me on authors and to ask for stories and to make me read out loud because I really do love it. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.